Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. For a very short period of time, we're looking together at one of Jesus' prayers in the Bible. In fact, it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus, and it's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Now, John was written by one of Jesus' nearest and dearest friends who was with him for all of his ministry, including Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And when we open to John chapter 17, we're looking at the last days of Jesus. He's right on the brink of going to the cross, suffering, and dying in our place for our sins. So here Jesus stops and He prays. This prayer is in three parts. Last week, we looked at how Jesus prayed for Himself. This week and next, how He prays for Christian believers. And then the week after that, how He prays for non-believers. The big idea is this. Jesus, in His prayer, prays for everybody because Jesus loves everybody. And one of the greatest, surest ways to build a relationship is to pray for one another and to pray with one another. So if you didn't do this, based on last week's sermon, here is this week's homework assignment. Pray for someone and pray with someone. That's really a surefire way to build relationships. We are building a relationship with God, and in prayer, we're inviting God in to help build relationships with one another. Having said that, Do you know that Jesus today prays for you? We'll say more about that next week, but let me ask, how many people regularly, consistently pray for you? How many people do you pray for? Well, Jesus prays for you. And what Jesus prays reveals the things that He thinks are most important for you and me to know, and He invites us to live in obedience to that prayer so that His prayer is fulfilled in us. Today we turn to John 17, starting at verse 6, where Jesus tells us the difference between the Word and the world. Verse 6, He begins, I have revealed you. He's speaking of the Father. This prayer is being made to the Father. That's who He's addressing. I have revealed you, Father, to those whom you gave me out of the world. If you're a Christian, you're in the world. But you have been chosen by God, picked by God, delivered by God out of the world. He says, they were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed you have sent me. What Jesus is saying here, first of all, He's right on the verge of dying. So these are the last hours of Jesus on earth. He knows He's going to die for our sins as our Savior, that He's going to rise, and then ultimately ascend back into heaven, back on His throne. 
And what he prays for is our understanding of our relationship with the world. Because one day, if you belong to the Lord Jesus, you will follow Him to be reunited with Him in heaven. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6. He, too, is speaking of this very same idea. And in Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were, therefore, buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Well, knowing that's our destiny, the question is, how do we live until that day? How do we live until that day that we are reunited with Him, that we too have a resurrection life? Well, here's two things that we know. Number one, we're in the world. And number two, that the world is opposed to God. That the world is actually dark and demonic and deadly. It is not of itself good and glorious and godly. And when Jesus uses the word world, it's a word that's used seven different ways throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it refers to the whole planet or all the people or a group of people or a nation or a culture or a fallen system. And it's not talking here about nations or cultures because God loves all nations, all races. We've seen and we would see if we read Revelation 5 that people from all nations and races and cultures will be gathered around the throne of Jesus worshiping Him forever. What Jesus means in His prayer is that the world refers to a fallen, corrupt system. You need to know that God creates and then Satan corrupts, that God creates this wonderful planet and Satan corrupts it through sin, that God creates truth and then Satan corrupts it with lies, that God creates life and Satan corrupts that with death, that God creates light and then Satan corrupts with moral and spiritual darkness. When Jesus speaks of the world, He speaks of a world that God made, a culture that God made, but Satan has now corrupted that. So let me tell you something that's going to sound offensive, but it's also insightful, and that is this. No culture on earth is sacred. We think we can't tell those people to change. That's their culture. We can't tell that group of people. We can't tell that lifestyle to change. All culture fits in the bucket of worldliness. And worldliness means that which is demonic, fallen, corrupted, anti-God, and anti-kingdom. When all is said and done, the kingdom of God will come down and the cultures of the earth will be no more. All there will be is the kingdom 
of God. So all the world is opposed to the kingdom of God. And this shows up politically, economically, spiritually, educationally. Make no mistake, curriculum in schools, governmental systems, financial institutions, the entertainment industry, much of that, if not most of that, is worldly. It's anti-God. So what Jesus is telling us is that there is a conflict between the world and the Word. And what the Word says is different than what the world does. And the question is, if there's conflict between the world and the Word, which one needs to change? Well, as a, as a Christian, we'd say, well, the world needs to change. And the world would say, no, the Word needs to change. This is the essence of the conflict, the heart of the controversy. So if you love Jesus and you read the Bible and you're trying to live out biblical principles, what you're going to find is resistance and conflict. How many times have you not wanted to share your beliefs, interject your faith, whether it's with family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, you've not wanted to that's when you know there's hostility from the world. And what Jesus prays is that we'd have a deep and profound confidence in the Word of God, and we'd be willing to endure any conflict or resistance from the world. And why would we be willing to do that? Because we love the people enough to risk it. Because if people are believing things that are untrue and lead to death, what more loving thing could we do? Well, Jesus continues His prayer with talking about His people as a family. So those who believe the Word of God become the family of God. Verse 9, I pray for them. Jesus is praying for the Christians. Hear me on this. This is remarkable. Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples. He is also going to be falsely accused, arrested, beaten beyond recognition, and then put to death. What does he do? He stops and he prays. What this reveals to us is that the first Priority is always prayer. If you and I don't have time to pray, our priorities are out of order. Here Jesus is at the most difficult moment in his life, and he prays. And it's not a selfish prayer, it's selfless. How many of you are like me? When you're suffering, you're selfish. When I'm sick, I think the earth should stop rotating on its axis. Someone bring me chicken noodle soup and rub my head till I fall asleep. Jesus here is suffering and still has compassion and empathy and awareness for others. That's supernatural. So he says, I pray for them. But then he says, I am not praying for the world. Jesus doesn't want certain forms of entertainment, 
or certain cultural narratives or certain ideologies or philosophies to flourish and be blessed because those are death, not life. Those are Satan, not God. So he doesn't pray for those things. He doesn't want to succeed. I am not praying for the world, he says, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. People are God's priority. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Now, there are many metaphors for the church in the New Testament. One of my favorite is family. The Bible says that we are a family, a household of God, that God is our Father. We are His kids. Jesus here is going to go to the cross into the tomb and return to heaven. And what he says is, Father, I haven't lost any of your kids. And I think we all wander from time to time, maybe have even tried running away from God. The good news is God doesn't give up. He keeps pursuing. And maybe that describes some of you. Maybe that's been your journey. So if that's true, Jesus in his prayer says, Father, I haven't lost any of your kids. This begs the question, what about Judas? Remember, Jesus picked 12 guys to be his disciples. They were with him for three years, being mentored by him, and one of the guys at the end was a total betrayer. His name was Judas Iscariot. What about Judas? Did God lose him? Sometimes the question is asked, can a Christian lose their salvation? It's the wrong question. The question is, can a father lose a child forever? Can God the Father lose one of His children forever? The answer is no. Because you see, it's not a kid who saves themselves. It's not a child of God who saves themselves. It's that they are saved. They are adopted. They belong to the Father who never leaves them, never forsakes them. So what about Judas? Again, that last piece of verse 12, Jesus says, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. So a little bit more about Judas. We're in John's gospel. On at least two or three other occasions prior to this passage in John 17, John has already revealed to us some other aspects about what Jesus knows of Judas. And one of those instances is in John chapter 6, verse 70. Jesus is with His disciples. He looks at them and He says, one of you is a devil. That would be an awkward moment, right? But Jesus knew that even though there were 12 guys, there were only 11 hearts devoted to Him. You can go to church and not have a heart for Jesus. You can even go to seminary and not have a heart for Jesus. There were 12 present 
but only 11 hearts were devoted. This means Judas didn't lose his salvation. Judas was one who faked having faith. So let me tell you something. You can't lose your salvation, but you can fake it. Judas was a guy who didn't lose it. He never had it. Now, here's the good news. Of the true children of God, Jesus loses no one. That leads to this. The household of God is like a big blended family. Blended families can be glorious and they can be problematic. Some part of the family is used to doing things one way. Other people in the family like things a different way. Well, The church of Jesus Christ is like that. We're made up of a lot of local families, but the big picture is one blended family. And in Jesus' prayer, He prays, remember verse 11, that we'd all be one. Now, we know it's difficult to have love and unity in one church, let alone in the sum of all churches. You think about the Christian landscape. There are Orthodox churches, which we don't have as many of here in the, in the U.S., but there's Greek Orthodox, there's Russian Orthodox, there's Syrian Orthodox and others. And then there's the Roman Catholic Christian community, and then the Protestants. And within the Protestant branch, there are so many denominations. But when you peel back all the layers, here's what as a true church, we would have in common that the Bible is God's Word, that we are sinners by nature and choice, that God created the world, that Jesus is God become a man, that Jesus lived without sin, He died on the cross in our place for our sin, He rose from death, and salvation is entrusting Jesus Christ alone. Now, those are the things that are central. And what that means is we can have other things that we disagree on, like style and and, and methods. We can disagree on those things without being disagreeable. You know, the only place where everyone agrees with every single thing is a cult. Any of you have family members you disagree with? Welcome to the family of God. Let me close with this. We exist. This church exists. To love you in the name of Jesus Christ and to love the lost into the kingdom of God. We hope that you feel loved here, served here, encouraged here, and that you in turn are able to receive that experience and through the power of the Holy Spirit impact everyone around you in the name of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.